Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Multi-Site Masters podcast. This is the podcast series that explores the art of leading and growing multi-site businesses, especially in the hospitality and retail sectors. So my name is Lee Sheldon and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm also co-founder of the MMU Training and Development Consultancy, in which we're dedicated to helping managers achieve consistent operational excellence, leading to sustained superior performance. So for this latest episode of the Multisite Masters, I'll introduce in a moment our very special guest, Professor Chris Muller. But our topic for this episode is the online delivery partners. The online market, as you will hear in a moment, is absolutely booming. Um, the companies that have joined and disrupted the market are really having an impact that will be long, long felt. And the opportunity for today was speaking with Chris and the three takeaways, which I think you'll get from listening to this session, is really a bit of an understanding of what's going on in this market, bearing in mind we are certainly in a period of big transition. And what is the future of the online delivery models? And if you don't know your dark kitchen from your ghost kitchen to your cloud kitchen, Chris is at hand. Um, He'll also be referring to an article he wrote in the Boston Hospitality Review, which will be available as a link in the show notes to this episode, which goes through his eight models of delivery, which I think is an excellent companion. We'll be looking at the macro themes that have affected the market from uh, oversupply of restaurants, customers perhaps losing interest in going out, the pricing model. We'll also be looking, can we learn anything from history, in particular the impact on the hotel and accommodation sector that online travel agents brought to the market. And finally, I'll be asking Chris if he were opening a restaurant today, considering the challenge of online delivery, who, what model would he adopt? What kind of provider would he want to work with? What would be his suggestion? So let's hear from Chris. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Multi-Site Masters podcast. We've reached a bit of a milestone today. And in fact, I'm not sure my guest knows this, but he's the first person to actually appear on the podcast a second time. So welcome back to the podcast, Professor Chris Muller. Hi, this is great. What an honor. Well, it is. I can't give anyone better to have that honour. For those of you who don't know, and you should know, Chris is one of the leading academics in the field of corporate restaurant management. Uh, his research has been focused on multi-unit restaurant brand management, restaurant organisation, and something very close to my heart, the training of multi-unit managers. Chris has lectured on management development across the world. Uh, in the Europe setting, he's one of the co-founders of the annual European Food Service Summit, and he's currently the professor of the practice at Boston University. Prior to that, well, I had the pleasure to meet Chris, was at the Rosen College of Hospitality Management in the university or at the University of Central Florida. So, Chris, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming back onto our podcast today. And the key reason why Chris is here is we're going to be talking today about online delivery. And it's no news to anyone. The explosion of that in the UK globally is absolutely tremendous. And as we saw in December with the MPD Group report, the growth is not expected to slow down. 10% like-for-like growth to 5 billion market in the UK alone. And just today, we see an article uh, referencing Uber Eats and how that's exploding into the global food delivery scene. So today isn't just to repeat those stats. Today is to give us a little bit of a window into the world. 
what's going on behind the stories, if you like, of this massive expansion of the online delivery market. Chris has written a number of articles, one of which we'll be referencing today about the, the future of the online delivery partners. And that's available on the Boston Hospitality Review. Uh, and that article will be linked into the show notes. You'll better read that. Chris is going to refer to some of the models that he references in that article. So definitely worth downloading that article as well. But it's, don't worry, this isn't going to be a lecture. This is really a conversation to get Chris's thoughts on what's going on, not just in the US, but globally. So Chris, what on earth is going on? Well, you know, it's, it's a, we're in such a transition time and um, the restaurants are, have exploded first off because the, when, as retail uh, across the, the globe sort of uh, reached a, um, a peak because of Amazon and Alibaba and just the, the delivery of retail uh, products, not just food. Uh, so as retail, shrank the big box corner stores we, we also saw the same with with banking all of the disrupted industries uh everybody looked at restaurants as being the future of um high street retail you know and let's put a restaurant where we used to have a bookstore a bank um you know any kind of retail boots and what, what was we've now seen is that those that peak is starting to reach um uh, an apex because the delivery model has really caught on with a con consumer population that looks at uh, delivery as a major convenience. Um, yeah. You know, in some parts of the world, Istanbul, the traffic is so bad that people won't even go out at dinner time because it takes too long to get back and forth. There's no parking. So a company like Domino's can deliver 40,000 pizzas at dinner time just in the Istanbul market alone. And, and you think about all the challenges that being at a restaurant um, or going to a restaurant might offer. And uh, in this age of, of sort of uh, collapsing into our, um, you know, our handhelds and social media, uh, part of it is that it's more fun to just stay home. And with a, a changing demographics, that's, that's a, an amazing part of the challenge for being in the restaurant business. So you have you have a, a sort of, I don't know, a combination of things. You have this, this oversupply. You have a customer base that's not as interested in the experience of going out. Uh, you have a pricing model that is affordable, uh, even if it costs more than, it, uh, than um, just going and getting something, a carryout service. And we've got this, this sort of merger all at the same time. So mm. I think we're... Um, we're watching the restaurant industry really in a transition time. Uh, so it's really a, a fun to watch. One of the things you spoke about in the article, Chris, that really um, resonated for me was the lessons that we might better learn from history, particularly with what happened with the hotel accommodation sector and the whole impact of online travel agents. Could you share with our listeners a bit more about that? Uh, the, part of this, um, uh, this idea that we've, we've taken control um of of our um our destiny you know as as travelers as consumers the 
I think are you alluding to the, the the idea that the online travel agents sort of disrupted the hotel business? Absolutely, yeah. The impact that they've had. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, mean, I, I often used to talk about in uh, my old retail world when I entertainment how the CD industry was affected. Mm-hmm. Music was affected by CDs, and then obviously downloading, and how the movie industry needed to learn from that. And I wonder again, yeah. are we seeing uh, a history repeating itself potentially in terms of what happened with hotel sector? Yeah, and and actually, that's that's the you know the uh, Christensen talked about uh, disruptive innovation, which really goes back to Schumpeter and and creative destruction. The capitalist model means that things come to a certain a certain point, and they start to uh, collapse in their traditional way of doing business. The hotel business was enormously impacted by the. Um, um, the what are called the OTAs, the online travel agents, and it's been almost twenty years since the, since that happened. And um, one of the things that it did was it went from a ten percent uh, travel agent model, where you used to go to the travel agent down the street and they they'd book, you know, they'd basically call the hotel or the airline on the phone for you and issue a ticket, to this online business model, which was an addiction in its early stages for the hotel business because they looked and said, oh, we've got all this excess inventory uh, of, of unsold hotel rooms. And here's these people saying they'll come in and, and sell it for us uh, with no cost to us. And since we're a high fixed cost business, the hotel said every dollar we bring in is, is going to be good for us. We'll get our occupancy up and this will be great. Well, I used the model, the a sort of very simple thing is, if the hotel room has a is a rack rate, which means the public facing rate of a hundred dollars, the uh, third party travel agents, the OTAs, came in and said, "We'll buy it from you for fifty and and the hotel business said, "Hey, that's fifty dollars for free because we've got all these empty rooms. You know, they're running sixty five percent occupancy. And then the online travel agency would put up a a price online of seventy five dollars. And so to the customer, they now were getting a hundred dollar room for seventy five dollars. The hotel was getting fifty dollars for it, and the online travel agency was making twenty five dollars a night, or you know thirty percent. At first, it seemed like everybody was winning, and then, as the the Expedia's and the Pricelines and the uh, Booking dot com and all those guys, uh, Travelocity started to really expand, the hotel business realized it was competing against itself. And so the the price of a hundred dollar room was really frontline price seventy five, and uh, so customers were looking and saying that that hotel is too expensive now. They were they commoditized the hotel room, so all they were doing was selling on price and no other attributes. Mm. Um, the hotel business, for whatever reason, said it needed to get to a million rooms. Uh, so you saw a lot of consolidation. So Marriott bought Stowood, and now. All of the major hotel brands have realized that they can run their own pricing model. And you'll see, like, if you go to Hilton, they'll say, whatever the lowest price is online, we'll, we'll sell it for a dollar less. So instead of selling the room at $75 to, uh, for Expedia, Hilton will say, we'll sell that same room for 74 And yeah. you think about it, that's in their best interest because now they're making, they, you know, instead of selling it at 50 they're selling it at 74 so they're better off. They're trying to put the, this, this third-party group out of business. Now, the point of that is that now the restaurant business has, has the same mindset. 
they're thinking of this online delivery as, as a free expansion of their market. Hey, we can do 20% more business, mm. you know, 25% more business if we, if we deliver or we send food outside of the restaurant. You know, oh, we've got this enormous pent-up customer demand for our product uh, for the menu items, but we don't have to actually have them come to the restaurant. We'll go to them. And these third-party delivery systems, Grubhub, Deliveroo, Just Eat, Uber Eats, will give them, and it's no cost to us. Well, it's not because they're actually charging 25 to 30% from, from the restaurant price, plus they're charging 2 to $8 of a delivery fee. Well, the customer is only looking at it and saying, oh, I'm only paying 2 to $8, and look, I, you know, they're bringing the food to me. But a restaurant's only working on, a, you know, at best, a 10 or 15% bottom line and most of them are working at around a five percent profit margin mm. you can't give away 30 percent and stay in business where the hotel business could do that because they had they had so much less cost you know it's up like 20 bucks to set up a room so they're still making money they're just not making as much yeah. the restaurant business can't do this and so if we take 30 percent of the of the top line revenue out of most restaurant companies they eventually even if they're doing twenty percent more business, you know, do the math. It, yeah. you lose you losing ten cents on every sale. You know, there's an old joke that, uh, you know, I lose I lose ten cents on every on every watermelon I I, need, I sell. What I really need is a bigger truck because I, I have to make it up in volume. You're still losing money. Yeah. And the restaurant business now, and I think you're starting to see the fallout. Uh, uh, many of the the traditional restaurant companies that are not big enough to absorb this or set up an alternative model. The old, in the, the, of the eight models we talk about, the independent one shot, meaning I control my, my business uh, or I now do it with an, some sort of aggregator ODP uh, because they, they can deliver for me. Hmm. Um, there's just not enough money left. And so this is a, a real challenge is, and then, you know, first you got the pricing, Second is what happens to the brand identity. Uh, if I call uh, Grubhub to order my food and I use their app, and I order from a local restaurant and say, you know, Teresa and Luigi's um, Italian restaurant down the street, who's who's going to get blamed if that food is not uh, edible? You know, if it takes forty minutes, but the the food left the restaurant half an hour ago, by the time you get a, a plate of uh, Fettuccine Alfredo home, it's become a gelatinous mass of goo. Who, who actually gets the blame for that? It's the restaurant, not the, not the delivery company. And so your brand is, you have to protect your brand. And so then it, it, you incur new costs for packaging. You have to make sure that the company is, is a partner and you're going to get priority. If you do it with Grubhub, can, you know, are you going to, I mean, um, Uber Eats, are they going to directly take it to the, to the site? And, you know, when you controlled it yourself, you could put a guy on a bicycle or a motorbike and, and know that the minute it came out of the kitchen, they were going right to the restaurant, uh, from the restaurant to the customer. You can't guarantee any of that stuff anymore. Mm. You don't know how many bags they've got in the, in the uh, delivery box that they're, they're doing. And, and it's not Uber and it's not Deliveroo that gets blamed for the bad delivery. It's the restaurant. Just like when you're in the you know, if you think about it, if you're in the restaurant and you sit down at a table and your meal is delayed, you blame the waitress, not the cook. Yep. Yep, good, good point. I when I think about some of the clients that we work with at Mastery Multi Units, we've got organisations that 
uh, go in terms of referring to your models, they have the independent one shot that you've just been referring to. They do it themselves. They have their own delivery drivers, vans, etc., bikes. Then we've got others who take the the aggregator route where they have the, they don't have the, their own fleet, and they're using yep. drivers on a, the gig economy approach, if you like. And then of course yep. we've got the the owned fleet aggregators like Uber, uh, Just Eats, etc. You've just mentioned. Yep. Now, if you were opening a restaurant today which model do you think you would have? Because I remember last time I asked you a question when we first interviewed you, what was the one thing you'd always do if you were opening a restaurant? And you'd say, no question, you'd have to have a delivery aspect to your business. Whatever you were doing, have a delivery aspect. I'd be interested to know what model you would adopt, do you think? But um, as as much as it pains me to say, I would look at either the ghost kitchen or the virtual kitchen model, where I would... I would uh, probably not have anything customer facing. Um, now, uh, we, we've looked at, um, and what, what the ghost kitchen is where there's, there's one kitchen that now sets itself up uh, without a high street presence. Uh, it might have uh, you know, a, a delivery window or a small, a small section and the customers can find you if they want to do takeout. But you can have one kitchen servicing four or five different restaurant concepts uh, and all the the only difference is the website and the a phone number, mm. uh, cell phone number for the delivery. The, as far as the customer is concerned, they're buying from five different restaurants. That you have a a sandwich place, a pizza place, a Chinese place, an Italian place, and an Indian place. They're all coming from the same kitchen. Uh, you're just um, you've created five different branded identities. That's what the ghost kitchen is. The virtual kitchen is I've already got an existing restaurant, but I've built in a um, a larger kitchen than I need for the number of seats. There, uh, there was a, a site we looked at uh, from one of my classes here in, in Boston that had been a delicatessen coffee shop kind of business. And, but there, it was designed by two uh, fairly ego-driven chefs and they had a kitchen that was 40% of the, of the rental space and they, was, they couldn't survive. They, it was a $3 million brand new kitchen and I realized uh, I'm talking to the students that it had a wonderful back door with a dedicated um, loading dock. And uh, we, I, I should have you know, had somebody jump on it. That would have been an ideal place to set up one of these virtual restaurants where they could have been running um, three or four different concepts out of the one kitchen and still maintain the, the front of the house, uh, the coffee shop and, and lunch business. But the bulk of the business would have been going out the Hmm. through the loading dock into the customer base. Um, I think that, that, to me, that hybrid model is probably the, the, the most potential for high profits. Whether you use a third-party delivery system or not, uh, that has to go into your pricing model. We have to change the way we price things, for one thing, so that that 30% is now incorporated into the cost of the, the delivery. You know, anybody who runs a restaurant knows that we talk about the prime cost, which has been the food cost and the labor cost. I think now uh, we have to add that delivery cost into the prime cost. So the three combinations, you take some from labor uh, that used to pay uh, tip differential or wait, you know, wait staff or service people. So you're going to need your kitchen labor, your delivery labor or delivery cost, and then the, the food price. And so that's the new, the new economic model. 
it's in, as a slight aside, but I um, had the pleasure of interviewing James Haken uh, a few months ago, mm-hmm. and he talked about the restaurant of the future. And one of the things he talked about from a pricing perspective was uh, a growth in surge pricing. So he said, in a sense, we've always had surge pricing because you could argue that a lunchtime menu is a, a, a basic version of surge pricing. Um, and could we see more of that? And as you say, looking at pricing model from the point of view of delivery, I think the whole pricing model itself needs uh, renovating. Um, just from a, a clarity perspective, um, you refer to co- ghost kitchens and you refer to virtual kitchens. I know a term yeah. that also gets mentioned in one of your other models is the dark kitchen. So could you just, for mm-hmm. anyone who's not so familiar with these terms, just to clarify what a well, dark kitchen is. Yeah, and the dark kitchen would be uh, would be a uh, a place where there's there's no um uh no setup at all the um um uh, let's say you know so in order you have the cloud kitchen which is dominoes uh the cloud being that it's uh, there are remote sites with a central commissary the ghost kitchen is where there's a kitchen but it it uh, doesn't have any customer facing it's just a kitchen itself and that's where you have the, this other one the virtual kitchen would be one way you have a restaurant that's running something that is not competing with itself uh, and, and using using the kitchen, extra kitchen space. And the dark kitchen would be someplace that that more like the ghost kitchens. It's it's dark in that the customers don't have any any specific facing. Um, so you know I'm I'm um, uh, the dark kitchen. I would put more in the in the um, ghost kitchen space. Right. To me, I've always felt the difference is the fact that the dark kitchen is really owned by the online delivery. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, I I should have been more explicit about that. Yes, the dark kitchen is the aggregators uh, that Deliveroo doing its uh, Deliveroo editions, Grubhub. Uh, What they've they've basically done is um, they've bought or set up a um, um, a production facility. They've t- they've uh, taken a model where they charge restaurants rent and they have to s- service this so that it's easier for the aggregator to. Um, to you know, I'm sorry, I, I, I should have been more explicit with that. Yeah, the dark kitchen is basically competing with the restaurant business. Uh, you know, it's like the dark, the evil empire. Uh, you know, it's a, the worst scenario is where you're competing not just with other restaurants, but now you're competing with the people that are delivering your food because they have their own kitchens. And and one of the things that we have to put into this model is that uh, like Just Eat and Grubhub have enormous big data. Uh, They can, if they're your partner, they can actually tell you where your customer uh, customer calls are coming from that you don't have a site so that you can put something in the market that's closer. So they they will tell you, look, uh, you know, you've got um, you've got three restaurants in uh, Southeast London, but you're getting about forty uh, percent of your call from outside of a three-mile radius of any of them. You should put a new restaurant somewhere in that market. First, it'll save us money for from the delivery; we can get to them faster. Second, is you'll have a higher opportunity to uh, to do business with with a customer base that wants your product. Now what you start to see is that that information that they will either give to you or sell to you because they they have all this these algorithms um, they are no longer your partner they're now your competitor and they say oh we're not going to tell you about this demand that we know is there we're going to put in our own kitchen facilities mm. to satisfy that and you can pay us for the for the right to deliver a 
food for us. That dog kitchen is the worst case scenario because you're competing with yourself. I had uh, I was lucky enough to see you present, Chris. I think September you were over, over here for the Propel Masterclass that you, you've been running. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me from your presentation was this basic line that Deliveroo or Uber Eats, the ODPs are not your friend. And they are, yes. and it's almost like the, or again, to me, it's how people are viewing Google now as saying, well, we, we are actually the product. Our data is the product. And in a sense, what they want is your data. Uh, and they, the, the restaurant's data, who their customers are. And as you say, if they can then build their dark kitchen, then they don't need you anymore. Yeah. And I, and our delivery is not having as much success as from what I understand with some of their, their sites and the dark kitchens. But yeah, I think this is, um, um, I really think this is a is a, a question of um, uh, of competing with an, an unknown giant that is not your friend at all. I, I describe it as a plague. Uh, you know, the plague wiped out about thirty to forty percent of Europe's population, and uh, it's potentially the same for restaurants. You know, there's so many challenges, but but if you're competing with somebody that has better information and can act on it faster than you can. And they're withholding it from you. They're not your friend. They're they're your enemy. Yes, I did chuckle in your article how you described it initially. What is this the holy grail? And, and then is yeah. it the, the biblical plague coming to fifty <laughs> percent of the restaurant business? Um, yeah. it's interesting. I've again some of the clients that I've worked with have been battling this. What type of model do we go down? And one of the interesting comments I, conversations I had recently was just this argument about the growth that there still is in delivery. You know, really, is, is that is that realistic? When when you actually realise how many areas have no access to, whether it be Uber Eats, Deliveroo, whoever, where I live now, I can't use any of those providers because none of them yet come to where I live. And I don't live in the middle of nowhere. So there's mm -hmm. still in the UK huge opportunity for these people to, to get into those markets. Um, I guess that's still the case in the US. Yeah, well, the, you know, it, one of the things that... Um we don't think about is that they're, they're very um, mercenary. They're not going to go someplace that doesn't have a high volume. You know, um, uh, even in the, the old days when Domino's was sort of inventing uh, this new model of delivery, they had a trade area. And, they, you, know, um, they, you know, so you'll see it sometimes uh, even in the, one, the, the independents that are doing their own. They'll deliver to a, a three-mile radius. But after that, they just won't go. And mm -hmm. Uh, there's not enough volume. You know, you got to remember that in order for this to make make sense economically, the average delivery person has to do about four to six deliveries an hour. Um, uh, you know, let think about it. If you just if you take the delivery charge, let's say it's a five pound uh, delivery charge on every order, uh, and you're paying somebody uh, fifteen pounds an hour uh, to to deliver, I don't, I'm just guessing that that's probably reasonable. Mm -hmm. And they're supplying their own bike or their own car. Um, that means that you've got a, you know, if you've got 20 coming in, giving them 15 is fine. But if they're only uh, able, because of distance, you know, 15 minutes out and 15 minutes back, uh, they're only doing two an hour, uh, you're going to lose money on them. And they're not going to do that. They, they have to have a proximity. That's why the that's why some of these um, ghost kitchens and the dog kitchens are, it's so important about where they're located uh, so that they have access to them to a, the highest density market. They might not ever come to you. Oh, I'll have to keep oh, why, myself. No. Why would they? 
<laughs> no, absolutely. My, where I live isn't, uh, I say, not exactly in the middle of nowhere. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, you've got to have the volume, haven't you? Um, yeah. And it, you know, if, the, if you and the dog start eating something together, <laughs> then maybe that, that's worth it. But, you know, just you alone, probably not. Yeah, maybe not. Um, moving on. Um, I also recall one of the, probably about 2010, 2011, I remember listening to one of your presentations at Rosen College and you spoke about Domino's and the fact that, yeah, we think they're a pizza business. So actually, they're, they're in the IT business. Uh, they're in the delivery business, but it's actually an IT company. And I think most people would agree in terms of dominance in this market, they are absolutely uh, the leading player. But of course, now we've seen them announce a trial with one of these ODPs. Um, I wonder what your thoughts were that. Were you surprised to see them getting into bed with an ODP? Well, I, I actually see it as an interesting um, uh, shift in the marketplace. And so um, uh, Domino's is, you know, one of their, their unique selling points, their, their unique pro, uh, points of differentiation is that they have always been this, um, um, the cloud kitchen, the hub and spoke. So that they had uh, commissaries and then they had these remote sites, oftentimes in, in places that customers would, wouldn't know where they are. And even today, if you think about it, um, most people couldn't tell you where the local Domino's is actually located. They don't, there's no physical space. It's located on their cell phone. Um, and, and so that was a, a unique point. But as the gig economy and the, the, the cost of delivery has risen, we also are fighting uh, tooth and nail for the the delivery people. So you know, uh, it's the kit that you buy. Okay, so it's it's a hundred quid to buy the kit. So you get the the beautiful um, delivery uh, backpack, the the uh, box for your bike, and the jacket and the hat and the sign for your car, whatever it is. Uh, you got to buy that. Well, but they'll give it back to you, and then who's paying more and all this sort of stuff. So there's this com competition for the drivers themselves. Um, in Domino's case, those are employees. They have to pay, um, you know, an add-on cost for them. So they can they can start to say, well, maybe it's more cost-effective for us to partner, even though uh, we can will be charged more for it up front. The ultimate cost per driver goes down. Hmm. I think it's it's similar. Um, I know here in the states. Uh, we see, you know, Amazon or LL Bean have have free delivery. Uh, and it used to be Amazon Prime, but you know, many places will do free delivery. Wayfarers advertises free delivery. Well, the way they've done that is they've made uh, because of the volume, they've made arrangements with UPS or FedEx to uh, because of the, the the pricing differentiation. The more business you do, the lower the price. And so uh, think of Domino's as looking at UPS or FedEx, uh, just like Amazon does. Or in, in Domino's case, it would be Just Eat. That's the delivery company that is going, we're saying, okay, we're the dominant deliverer of, of product of any kind worldwide is Domino's. They, they, you know, they, they, produce, they deliver more food than anybody. So if you can make a very attractive deal with a, with a very large uh, delivery company, then you can say, well, in fact, we can offload or outsource the delivery component and partner with them. What many people don't realize is that in the United States, FedEx has partnered with the United States Postal Service uh, because it was not hard to figure out for FedEx. They had all these drivers, but the Postal Service is already paying people to go to every house in the United States. 
the Postal Service has the widest distribution of delivery people in the world, and they were just not, they were competing with them instead of using them as partners. So now FedEx and the United States Postal Service work together. And so the Postal Service will deliver more packages uh, today than UPS and FedEx combined because uh, that's a natural partnership. You know, we call it the getting the last mile is, you know, what Amazon has always talked about. Um, and part of it is that you have to, you have to pay for the delivery service. The post office is already doing it. Just Eat is already doing it. So why not, why not let them do it? Yeah, I didn't realize that. So literally you could be employing um, FedEx, you were saying, to yeah. deliver a parcel, but it actually gets delivered by the U.S. Postal Service. Absolutely. I did not know that. I wonder if that could happen here. That's going to be interesting. Um, well, it, it may, once you realize it, why, why shouldn't the postman yeah. be a FedEx deliverer? My God, they could be delivering food next. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Amazon's doing that. That's yeah. why Amazon bought Whole Foods. Is the, the Whole Foods model, it's 400 supermarkets. You can go to a Whole Foods here in the States, and there's an Amazon delivery box in the front. But now, you know, they now have retail outlets that they can deliver from. Um, why not use that built-in network to already do it? And so for Domino's, now, if you, if you say, okay, we've got our own system, but we can now expand our system by using somebody else's existing infrastructure, of course it makes sense. Mm. One of the other things that we're seeing, and we had a big story in the news last week, um, the, the phrase the gig economy, I'm assuming, is, is kind of familiar yeah. across the world. But the uh, one of the big delivery companies in the UK last week agreed with uh, to recognize a trade union, but also to provide their drivers with enhanced contracts, holiday pay, sick pay, etc. So clearly, that's going to impact on their profitability. Uh, but it's obviously a good thing from an employee perspective to be able to provide that kind of protection and those kind of rights. Oh, do you think we're seeing a, a backlash against elements of the gig economy in the US as well as, as we're seeing here? And do you think that's yeah. going to make the, the owned fleet far more attractive in the long run? I, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's a paradox. It's, most, it's both more attractive and less attractive. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what winds up happening, you know, it, there can be... Um, at, what it comes down to is the delivery person is in shorter supply than the demand to hire them. So what do we want to do? Because uh, unemployment is low and, and people aren't interested, especially, you know, in northern climates. You know, it's one thing to be a delivery person where it doesn't snow. But in climate weather, you know, I think you've, you've probably seen stories that even in London, uh, the number of people doing deliveries goes down in the winter and goes back up in the summer because people just don't want to be outside riding on a bike or a motorbike delivering food. Um, and so the, the gig economy is, is now becoming a, um, uh, something that, that especially unions and labor rights people are looking at and saying, well, why, you know, why can't these people be treated better? Um, Itinerant working, the itinerant workforce across all boards. It's it's waiters, cooks, retail workers, fast food workers, and delivery people are are the new um, uh, miners and uh, factory workers from a hundred years ago. The labor movement in the in, around the world really came into its own in the early 1900s, uh, and that's when when vast uh, as the industrial revolution really took off. What we're seeing now is this post-industrial economy. So it's, it shouldn't be surprising that there's going to be some kind of organization effort from 
uh, from folks to, to band together and, and, and get better working conditions. It's inevitable. So if you think Labour is going to band together, do you see the more aggregation between the ODPs themselves or are we going to see more takeovers? Yeah. No, I think the consolidation has to happen. You've got, you've got players, some of them making money. Some of the largest ones, even Uber Eats, is not. You know, they're passing $10 billion in sales this year. Uh, but uh, they're only they're bringing a, like a, a billion dollars of that down as as revenue. Um, I think you're going to see uh, consolidation as you you're already seeing with Deliveroo and Uber Eats and and so expect you know there's an old um, uh, sort of uh, uh, strategic position there's first second and everybody else um, uh, in the pizza business. We still see three or four dominant players, but uh, Domino's is now passed Pizza Hut worldwide. And in the hamburger business, there's basically three major players. I think you're going to see that for this this industry as well. There'll be two, three, maybe four dominant players uh, that are worldwide are going to be the delivery companies. Well, a fascinating um, environment to observe over the next 12 to 18 months as we see this market mm-hmm. continue to grow and continue to mature. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It's oh, been yeah. a pleasure to speak with you again. Uh, any final thoughts as we close? Yeah, I, I think there's an observer. Uh, I've always said that, you know, it's always the best time to open restaurants. Now it's it's probably the, uh, looking for real, true innovation is um, – is going to make the, the next wave of restaurant operators. Uh, we're going from fast food and fast casual to a new model. And I think this is going to be a really exciting time for young, innovative uh, ideas, probably for people from outside of business. Mm. It's interesting you say that. And you said earlier about if you were opening a restaurant, the virtual restaurant is probably what you'd you know, certainly consider as a, as a real um, option. I think what's interesting here, we're also seeing, and I know you are too, the growth of the experiential. The the, the yep. used to be the crazy girl for a flight club in the UK is, is a fantastic brand that has just transformed the idea of playing darts uh, into a really exciting um, afternoon out, evening out, whatever you do. And I think that experiential piece um, layered on with a fantastic food and beverage offer is certainly something that people are still interested in. But you've got to, it isn't just the food experience itself. It needs something to go with it. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, we're never going to want to not go out. Uh, but here in the States, we've got some big challenges because uh, the introduction of legal marijuana is going to change the social uh, aspect of what it means to go out. We're seeing, I just was talking to one of our local nightclub owners, in the last three years, they've seen a shift from uh, basically a 10 p.m. start to an 11 p.m. start. People are drinking uh, a little less than they used to. They think it's a combination of uh, of more places to go, but also a changing habit. Uh, the pregame is different, and so you you're getting a lot of different a lot of different uh, things that are happening. I think people still want to go out and have fun. So I'm not, and I they want an experience. They still want to have um, um, you know great food and a great surroundings. I think that what great food means is different. I think what service means is different. So um, that's another another discussion. Great. Well, let's let's circle back in next year and we can have a look and review how our predictions for the growth uh, in uh, delivery have gone, but also we'll see how, what's growing and what's exciting in the experiential food business. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Have a great afternoon. I want to be the first. I want to be the first third person round. So yes, let's do it again. <laughs> Deal. Take care, Chris. <laughs> Bye. Bye. 
So once again, a really fascinating conversation with Chris. So delighted to have him back on the Multisite Masters. Uh, a few takeaways for me. Firstly, just, and I refer to the article, the Boston Hospitality Review article that Chris has uh, written and we've uh, provided in the show notes as a great companion piece and really helping to understand the various models of delivery, what's going on out there. And as I said, if you didn't know your dark from your ghost kitchen, that will certainly help. The macro themes that Chris spoke about, but particularly the uh, the challenge and what we can learn from history of what happened to the hotel sector. And I thought it was fascinating how, from a pricing perspective, they started to cannibalize their own business without truly understanding what the online travel agent could bring and the danger, if you like, of what it could bring. Um, and what we saw there was that with the aggregation of the market and hotel companies creating their own much more powerful online presence, we're already starting to see in the uh, online food delivery uh, sector. Also, I thought it was fascinating to hear Chris's honest uh, assessment of what model he would adopt if he were opening a restaurant today. So that was the episode for, with Chris. I, I have a feeling this is a topic that as the market grows, we will we'll come back to. Uh, as ever, Chris's uh, contact details are available in the show notes. And I know he does always like if people drop him a note, uh, either with questions or just to uh, reach out to connect on LinkedIn, etc. Um, don't Please don't hesitate to drop um, and download those uh, that document, the Boston Hospitality Review that we refer to several times. And until next time, thank you to Sam Walsh for our producer. Have a great week and I hope to uh, speak to you all again soon. Bye.